This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03, Wednesday afternoon, November 30th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour, presented by the Village of Bedford Park. I'm Rob Hart. Some companies have been experimenting with a four-day work week. We'll talk about its possible wider acceptance coming up in our next segment. But right now, the latest measure of the economy is out today, along with a report on private sector employment. We're joined by Chris Johnson, market strategist with the Johnson Research Group. Group in Cincinnati, Ohio. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Let's talk about the employment picture first uh, as we uh, head towards the Labor Department report for employment in the month of November. The private payrolls number is out from ADP, and it's below expectations. Yeah, you'd actually think that the market may have applauded this a little bit, Rob, because uh, simply put, I think the market is expecting to see a little bit more weaker numbers on the jobs front, and that in the market's perspective, is good news if you're just trying to consider what's going on with the Fed. So in other words, Jerome Powell and the rest of the Fed heads have made it clear that they want to see a slowdown in not only the jobs, but the the wages more importantly, because that's part of that inflation push. So today's little glimpse into what we might see on Friday gave a little bit of hope. But again, this is one of those weird situations where do we really want to route for bad news for the market to go up? I don't think so. Not in this case. Big gains in leisure and hospitality, but that was offset by losses in manufacturing, professional, and business services. Correct. The manufacturing, I think, is the thing out there that is throwing people for a loop. Uh, We've heard one thing out there. It is that there is a shortage of workers um, in those type of positions, leisure and and the travel expected because, you know, we're hitting those periods where you see Florida and a number of these warmer spots ramp up for their their season. So a lot of work available there. Um, This, again, is turning into a little bit, uh, not algebra, but I mean, calculus at the perspective of where the jobs are. It made sense, but the manufacturing is a little bit of a question mark, especially when industrials and all that area of the market has been doing so well. Now, job openings fell in the month of October, but that's according to the the JOLTS report, the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey, but there's still uh, 1.7 jobs for every person who is looking for one. (laughs) Exactly. And that is one of the things that this market has continued to face. If you want work, Rob, it's out there. And not only is it out there, but that's what's affording or pushing those wage salaries to go higher. Again, one of those things in the the Fed's plan that they want to see slow down. When we see those openings start to drop, that's going to be, I think, the true tipping point for the jobs market. A lot of this uh, part of the year or this time of the year is dealt with turnovers and changes. And as we said, leisure and travel starting to pick up. But what we really need to see is a slowdown in what is out there. I think that's still a couple months out when we look at the uh, the what's going on truly in the jobs market. Again, 
the message is there's work out there. They're having to pay more for people to get into those seats. And as long as that's the case, the Fed is going to be a little more cautious as they uh, look at interest rates. And then very quickly, Chris, uh, the latest look at the third quarter gross domestic product shows an economy that was uh, stronger than first anticipated or than first uh, the first assessment. Yep. Talk, go back to that good news, bad news relationship. This gives the Fed a little more runway in terms of trying to get things tighter because everybody's expecting that we're right on the doorstep of a recession. And let's face it, we may already be there. That's a lagging indicator. This number, though, starts to temper what the Fed is doing and say, hey, you know what, maybe there's a chance we can have a softer landing than expected. I think it gives the Fed more room to do exactly what they told us they're going to do, which is slow things down. Expect higher rates at five to seven range, I think, is very much a reality. Chris Johnson, market strategist with the Johnson Research Group in Cincinnati. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up, a discussion of whether the four-day work week will become more of a common practice. Discussing the news affecting your money. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Proponents of a four-day work week believe that it's good for business. Let's talk about that concept and its practical application with Rick Cobb, founder of the workplace consulting firm Two Discern, based in Chicago. Rick, thanks for joining us today. Now, if you conducted an informal survey of workers and said, hey, would you rather work four days a week versus five, you'd probably get 100% acceptance. But now we have the results of a scientific study that says maybe it's good for business. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in this, but one of the things that's been around probably for three decades are studies that indicate human beings really can't think nonstop for eight hours. So if you have a complex job, if you have an accounting function, science, research, et cetera, you've only got about three hours of concentration in you in that eight-hour period. So what are you doing with the other five hours? That's one issue. The other part of it is is that that I'll, we have in the UK they did a study of three thousand uh, three thousand uh, employees over a significant number of companies in a six month experiment, and they said as long as your productivity stays at the level that is at, we will pay you uh, your, your full wages, even though you're only going to work four days instead of five days. The, the transition to that was bumpy because, well, wait a minute, where's Carl or Joanne? They're not here today. But once they got past that first month or so, they found that people were much happier, far more engaged in terms of the work that they were doing, just as productive because they didn't have the Monday blues and they had extra time to take care of the things that they were interested in doing. The uh, post... I was going to say, but the the, the post uh, kind of COVID relationship between workers and their bosses has changed considerably, and the workers have a lot more leverage. They are able to negotiate working from home. They're all they are able to negotiate a four day work week or maybe a three day work week. But there was a story in the Wall Street Journal last week that suggested that uh, Elon Musk might be bringing back the old fashioned business tyrant, and that that era of of employees negotiating uh, their working conditions. Conditions, uh, uh, when they can work and where they would work, that era might be coming to an end. So are we going to see a clash between these two ideas? It's, it's a supply and demand issue always. We're a capitalist functioning organization, businesses. They work the same way that they always have. If I can't get the talent I need in order to do the work that I need done and the workforce has the upper hand, then I'm going to have to I'm going to have to adapt to that. We used to have a six day work week, um, and then we went to a five day work week. There were the same complaints about that, that that we're having now with the concerns about productivity. 
But, I mean, 20, 30 years ago, uh, Best Buy had an ROE, ROWE, results-only work environment, where you get the work done at the level that I want, meet, make the meetings that you're supposed to. I don't care if you show up or not, as long as you're getting the work done. So it is going to be a battle. And I don't think that you can be in a technology business, as is Elon and uh, Elon Musk, and say to people that you desperately need who can work remotely and be just as effective, if not more effective, that you have to come in. I, I, think, that's, uh, I, I think that's not practical in terms of contemporary work. Is this the beginning, then, of the evolution to the next phase of work, whatever it is? The, the idea of you know, the, the, the lifestyle as uh, portrayed in the Bachman-Turner Overdrive song, Taking Care of Business, uh, where if your train's on time, you can get to work by nine. Is that going to become a relic of a different era? I, I don't know. I, it's hard to say that. There are so many factors. If we go into a recession, there's going to be a lot of ways that businesses look to cut back on their headcount. And, and yet they still need to be able to meet the needs of their organizations in terms of talent. So I, 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 that's a hedge. I think this is going to be something that's going to play out a long t- over the next 10 years or so. A lot of things that we look at initially, we're afraid of them. They're, it's hard to make the changes. And then retroactively look back and well, that really wasn't that bad. So I think it's the actual trying it, organizations trying it and having success is the best way for this to move forward, uh, fighting it out uh, on in the news and, and in conversations isn't the same as actually doing it and see how it works. But I think it's headed that way. Rick Cobb, founder of the workplace consulting firm To Discern in Chicago. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up next, these are hard times for first-time home buyers. Information to make cash and save cash. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Higher prices and soaring interest rates are keeping many prospective first-time home buyers on the sidelines. Let's update the housing market with Steve Kirch, real estate editor with MarketWatch.com, a MarketWatch based here in Chicago. Steve, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we have been talking about how housing prices have been easing a little bit over the last couple of months, but uh, the average home price is still substantially higher than it was a year ago. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, some of the numbers that show a cooling off in housing prices really have only shown that they have stopped rising as, as fast as they have. Uh, those monthly numbers, though, are kind of encouraging for, for folks who maybe are priced out of the market now because those prices, we may see them drop a little more into 2023. But at the moment, it's really taking a toll on first-time homebuyers. They are down now to a record low. Only about 25% of all homebuyers were first-timers in the last year, and that's the lowest that the uh, since the data has been tracked by the uh, Realtors Association. And if you're a first-time home buyer, you're still renting, and even if you're crunched for space and you want to make that take that leap into home ownership, uh, the math is pretty intimidating. Uh, home prices are higher than they were a year ago, and interest rates are considerably higher than they were a year ago. Right, so that's going to crimp your monthly payment right off the bat. Uh, the high housing prices make... Uh, amassing a down payment, you know, a very tough savings chore. And all that adds up to folks just delaying the decision. The uh, realtors also found that the median age 
of first-time home buyers in the last year was 36, and that's an all-time high. So folks are really having a, a hard time scraping together those savings. Uh, if you are in, in in the housing market, you just have to get something, but you're renting right now and you're trying to do the math and make it work. Uh, what are what are the what are what are some some data points that you can point to that would ease that prospective first time home buyer's anxiety about actually taking the leap into the housing market? Well, you know, you, you have to be prepared. That's that's the first thing besides saving for that down payment and maybe, you know, exploring some local options for housing assistance. There are down payment assistance programs out there for first-time buyers. Uh, you also need to know what kind of mortgage you can get, how much house you can afford, know where you want to live, basically, and, and what you want to buy. Uh, and then think about all the additional costs that come along with that homeownership, insurance, maintenance, utility costs. You have to have all of those ducks kind of lined up before uh, I think you can feel confident about trying to jump into this market. And then are there some ways you can make this uh, cool off in the housing market work for you? About a year ago, we were talking about people, uh, you know, you have to put down that down payment now because you don't know who's going to swoop in. Is that still a concern? There, There certainly still is some inventory problem out there. Uh, sales have slowed. You know, the people are, are still not putting as many homes on the market. Uh, so, But th- things do seem to have cooled. So I think first-time buyers in particular maybe don't have to feel quite as forced as they once did. Uh, even though your choices might be limited, you may have a little more time to make them these days uh, than you did several months back. Steve Kirch, real estate editor with Market Watch, based in Chicago. Thanks for joining us today. Still ahead in Personal Finance Wednesday, giving the gift of investing to children. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This is Chicago's News Traffic and Weather Station, News Radio 105.9. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. Congress takes action to head off a potential national rail strike. The latest coming up in a special report from CBS News. It's Personal Finance Wednesday, and this afternoon we're looking at ways to use the holiday season to kickstart investing for kids. And Delta is making it tougher to get into its airport lounges. WBBM business, the markets are mixed right now, but uh, staging a bit of a comeback. The Dow is down 19 points, the NASDAQ up 88, the S&P 500 up 13. We have 26 degrees right now at O'Hare under cloudy skies, a wind chill of 14, going up to 32 today, but once again, wind chills will be stuck in the teens at 1231. CBS News Special Report, nationwide crisis averted. On this vote, the A's are 290, the nays are 137, 
The joint resolution is passed. The U.S. House just passed a bill to block a potential railroad strike. The legislation would impose a contract deal reached back in September on a dozen railroad unions. CBS's Allison Keyes has those details. President Biden has said any walkout could cripple the economy as businesses scramble to prepare in case of a strike that could begin as early as December 9th. Kansas Republican Senator Roger Marshall says a strike would be devastating to his state. I would much prefer us not to intervene, but at the same time, for this to shut down uh, will be horrendous for Kansas as well as for Kansas agriculture. So I think all the cards are on the table right now. I haven't decided what I'll do. This measure now heads to the Senate, and if approved, it would be signed by President Biden, who requested this action. CBS News Special Report, I'm Monica Ricks. It's 1232 as the noon business hour continues, presented by the Village of Bedford Park. Markets are higher. We're joined by Ken Crawford, Portfolio Manager with Argent Capital in Clayton, Missouri. Ken, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Markets have uh, turned positive in the last couple of minutes. What are investors reacting to? Is it the news? that a railroad strike has been averted, or are they uh, kind of reacting in real time to uh, Jay Powell's remarks at the Brookings Institution? Uh, Rob, I think probably some of both. Um, Obviously, a railroad strike would have been difficult for the economy, especially coming into the holiday season. Also, China seems to be lifting uh, some of the COVID restrictions. Um, How that's going to play out, obviously, is anyone's guess going forward, but to the degree that China has been um, a supply chain problem for the last couple of years, uh, easing that would be a positive. And then, as you said, uh, people listening to Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and trying to get a sense of his either words or body language as, as we come into the December FOMC meeting. And this is on top of what was already a busy day of data as far as the uh, two snapshots of the labor market, the ADP report, the JOLTS report, just looking at uh, the number of openings and quits and moving around, uh, along with uh, the revision of uh, Q3 GDP on the upside. Right. Um, just as you said, the, the jobs data on the margin weaker, uh, GDP obviously better you know, positive for the market and the bond market, treasury yields, uh, interest rates on the treasury bonds going up. So I guess net net people are thinking that the GDP uh, data was was the real driver. And then again, perhaps avoiding a railroad strike. And then uh, it's it's very interesting to watch uh, the fluctuations in the the three major uh, uh, financial indices uh, as as Jay Powell is speaking. It's almost like uh, uh, to put it in terms that you would understand, uh, riding a roller coaster at Six Flags over Mid America. That's right. I mean, and and people will parse and splice and read into you know a comma, a pause, whatever. Coming into this, he certainly has said that. The Fed would overshoot if they were to miss their target and then back off. Um, and there has been kind of mixed messaging coming into this meeting uh, uh, amongst Fed governors about, you know, do we push, stay on the on the brakes or do we let off a little? So I think this uh, speech is particularly 
uh, worthy of, of consideration. Well, some some news that's coming out right now. Uh, the, he did signal that uh, we're going to see maybe a uh, half a point uh, rate increase in December versus uh, 75 uh, basis points, uh, which has been the MO uh, for most of this year. And But also said that, in, that inflation is still way too high. And despite some encouraging signs we've seen uh, on the inflation front, especially on the CPI and the PPI, uh, it's not a winning streak just yet. And uh, it's still full speed ahead on monetary tightening. I think 50 basis points, half a percent was what was expected. And then to your point going forward, one of the questions that investors are asking is, is it higher for longer? So maybe the Fed at some point stops raising rates, but keeps rates high in order to prevent any kind of recurrence of inflation. And I think that'll be a big part of the narrative for the markets uh, in 2023. Ken Crawford, Portfolio Manager with Argent Capital, based in Clayton, Missouri. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up next in Personal Finance Wednesday, giving children the gift of investing. Compounding your interest with an economy of words. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. A Christmas gift that keeps on giving could involve help in starting an investment account. Let's talk about helping young people get the ball rolling with Ed Jertson, Certified Financial Planner and founder of the Engage Wealth Group based in Chicago. The website, engagewealthgroup.com. Ed, thanks for joining us today. And yes, this is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm going to begin, Ed, with an anecdote uh, that happened very fairly recently. And that is uh, my parents unearthed some saving savings bonds that were uh, given to me for birthdays and my first communion 34 years ago. Uh, they reached maturity not too long ago and uh, went to the bank, cashed them in, and that was a nice little chunk of change at the end of the day. So uh, if, you, if you want to open up an investment account uh, for a child uh, at holiday time, uh, that's a gift that could uh, bring many happy returns decades down the road. Yeah, absolutely, Rob. You know, as you mentioned, right, what a great way to embrace the season of giving by by giving your children a gift of teaching them about financial literacy and investing. And so while your parents set you up well for savings bonds, right, which earns just a regular rate of return or a regular interest rate, you know, guiding children, especially with those very long time frames into investing, let's say, in stocks is also an excellent way of uh, giving that that lifelong gift. And it's also a way of teaching in a very uh, interesting fashion the value of money uh, above and beyond, you know, the the numerical dollars and cents side of it. Yeah, it kind of comes back to the fundamentals, right? It's the three pillars, if you would, of, of finances. Save some, give some, and invest some. So teaching your kids those two, the save some and give some, is always great. But but the invest some is important because this can be a duality of purpose because not everyone listening who's a parent knows that much about the stock market, let's say. What a great way to learn together, right? By coming together and coming up with ideas and generally coming up with a strategy and a plan for investing over the long term. It's just an excellent, excellent way of getting those solid fundamentals that will be the greatest gift you give your children over their lifetime. Now, I know we've talked about uh, the ways in which you can set up a family investing club over the course of the year. Uh, Could this be a good a time as any to uh, establish that? Absolutely. Any time is a good time to teach financial literacy, especially education. And custodians today, some of the big name custodians actually offer youth accounts where the kids have direct access to those accounts. 
there are some good things and some challenges, so be very careful about that, but the parents have oversight. So yeah, that investment club idea, what an excellent idea to sit down every so often, whether it's every month and kind of review, hey, what are we investing in and what are we looking at? Because again, that that tightens the tide, if you would, of that investment circle and, and family bonds. And I'm thinking of, uh, of one way you can set this up. You go to uh, one of the many places where you can uh, set up an investing account, and then you ask your child what they want for Christmas, and then maybe you start off by buying stocks in the companies that produce the electronics they want or the video games that they covet. Yeah, going way back to the Peter Lynch days, yeah, as a portfolio manager, you invest in the things that you like and that you use on a regular basis. And so, again, to that point, it, it becomes familiar for the kids, whether it's a big name product like Apple or name your other company that's out there. That's kind of the important part because that gets them interested. And that's what you're trying to do with these young minds with very short attention span is that's another excellent way of getting them interested in what they're investing in because they're using it and they know it on a day-to-day basis. And then how active, uh, you talk about how this could be a learning process for both children and their parents. As the adult, how active should you be in uh, managing this account uh, once December rolls into January? Yeah, great point, because you have to remember that in taxable accounts, these short-term trades, if you hold a, if you have hold a security for less than a year, it's basically taxable income to you. So think of long-term and long-term capital gains. Something else to consider, Rob, is children who have income, earned income from the year of a part-time job, think about setting up a Roth account for them because that money is, is, is tax-deferred and potentially tax-free. What a great way, again, of building wealth over the long run by focusing in on allowing them to have that kind of account as well. Ed Jertson, Certified Financial Planner, founder of the Engage Wealth Group based in Chicago. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Join us at this time tomorrow for Technology Thursday. And still to come, it will soon be more difficult to get into a Delta Airlines airport lounge. It's 60 minutes of financial planning. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Delta Airlines is working to limit access to its airport lounges starting next year. Let's find out why. From Joe Brancatelli, editor and publisher of Joe Sentin based in New York. Joe, thanks for joining us today. The uh, airport lounge is a good way to escape the uh, hustle and bustle of the airport if you have the frequent flyer miles or some other means of accessing an airport lounge. But Delta's saying that maybe uh, there's too much hustle and bustle inside the lounge itself. The problem is there are now increasingly long lines just to get into the Delta clubs. And it's a unique to Delta problem for two reasons. One, unlike American and United, which you can see at O'Hare Airport, Delta does not have separate lounges for their international business class customers. The other problem that Delta has is they have an incredibly integrated deal with American Express that's worth them about $4 billion that allows club access on many cards. So they don't have enough clubs. They don't have enough club space. And they've basically given away too many freebies for for American Express customers and others. So now they're having to take away access from people who used to have it. And does this include the uh, the credit card customers and 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 other people who who may have bought their way in? No, at the moment they've danced around that. What they've done weirdly is tell their own best customers, the most frequent Delta flyers, that if you're flying internationally on coach 
despite your credentials and flying hundreds of thousands of miles with Delta, you won't be allowed in the club unless you have paid to enter the club. So they've protected Amex at the moment because, let's be honest, Amex is a better customer than any individual flyer. Now, is this a, a, a particularly uh, troublesome issue at a particular airport, or is this happening across the Delta system? Is it crowded in Salt Lake City? Is it crowded in Detroit or Minneapolis, or is it just strictly a New York-Washington phenomenon? Well, it's actually more New York and Detroit, where they have their international hubs. Uh, New York JFK, although New York uh, LaGuardia is also very crowded, Detroit is a hub for Delta as opposed to Chicago, where American and United are based. So they're having some problems there, although it's not as difficult because Detroit uses a lot of flights to Asia and Asia traffic hasn't resumed yet. The problem is you don't really know who's using your lounge or where they originate because a customer who originates in Chicago might actually be coming to New York to catch a Delta flight to Europe because they're tied to Delta. So even though it's unique to certain destinations, Delta really has a problem throughout the system with their customers. Joe Brancatelli, editor and publisher of JoeSentMe.com, based in New York. Thanks for joining us today. If you missed any part of today's Noon Business Hour, we'll have the replay podcast available shortly at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.